there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, get that clown out of here. I could say the same thing about you, Buster. This is across Middlesex County lines. Yeah? You draw that jurisdiction yourself? I don't think so. Now do me a favor and clear this crowd. That's the Reverend, I think. And that floozy from the choir. No, it ain't. No man of God would end up like this. Good Lord, get away from the bodies, would you? Have you got any respect at all? Excuse me, officer. Yes, ma'am? My name is Grace Edwards, the one the young couple came to after they found the bodies. I live right over the hill. I'm sorry, ma'am. We don't have time for that right now. This crowd control is a nightmare, and Middlesex is trying to claim this for themselves. Claim? This isn't a game, officer. People are dead. That couple, Ray and Pearl, they're losing it. They can't hold themselves together. I can't handle them alone. Give us just a little more time, ma'am. Somerset County will have this under control soon enough. Oh, damn it all. What did I say to you, scumbag? Oh, this is local news if I've ever seen it. Don't you go selling that to anybody. This is a closed scene. Doesn't look closed to me. Those folks over there are touching the body. It's the Reverend. I told you. Look, here's his calling card lying right up against his foot. Dear Lord, what is this paper strewn about? Love letters, I bet. Oh, man, this girl's covered in blood. Clear Clear out out of here. Well then, it's finally sorted, Detective. This is an embarrassment of the highest order, officer. It took Somerset County three hours to establish full jurisdiction and lock down this crime scene. Sir, in our defense, the New Brunswick police refused to back down. Is this a pissing contest or a double homicide investigation? What this is, gentlemen, barely matters anymore. There are fingerprints across all of the evidence we have. The scene has been trampled by the entire town's steps. You've turned what may have been an open and shut case into a complete enigma. We still have a foundation here, sir. The young couple that found the body are ready to be interviewed. And there's someone else. Well, don't hold your tongue now, officer. Who? A local. A woman who tends to hogs on her land nearby. What are we going to do with some pig woman? Sir, she claims to be a witness. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Wendy McKenzie. And I'm Carter Roy. Today we return to New Brunswick, New Jersey, the year 1922. We last left secret lovers Reverend Edward Hall and choir singer Eleanor Mills as they walked along Derussi Lane, 
a midnight meeting spot for romantic rendezvous. That night, on September 14th, the two were murdered in cold blood. Their bodies left arranged and displayed, as if to show what happens to the deceptive and amorous of this town. On September 16th, another couple, Raymond Schneider and Pearl Bombers, discovered the slain lovers. This small, tragic tale would soon inflate in size, absorbing denizens of the town and mines across the country. The investigation would span years, yet the conclusion would remain forever out of grasp. This is episode number 31 of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, and the second and final installment of the Hall Mills murder case. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or to hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. But now, back to the scene of the crime. New Jersey, September 1922. The trials that Frances Stevens, Edward's widow, and her family would face became a national phenomenon. September 16th was a law enforcement nightmare. The conflict and confusion between Somerset and Middlesex County officers resulted in the entire crime scene being contaminated and tampered with by onlookers. By the time Somerset County took control, the business card left at Edwards' feet had been passed around by many people, and the identities of the corpses compromised. All they had in way of suspects were Raymond and Pearl, and of course, the families of the deceased. As is usual in cases involving murdered wives, James Mills was considered prime suspect number one. And yet, there was an unusual hiccup in that assumption. Good Lord, how can you accuse me of something like this? Sir, it is common practice that when a married woman is killed alongside a man who could have only been her lover, her husband is the first man we turn to. I'm not a monster. I love Delhi. We have children. Oh, the children. I didn't even know. Excuse me? Are you saying? That's right. I wasn't even aware she was having an affair. I didn't know she was capable of it. I didn't know a thing until you knocked on my door and told me my wife was dead. Convinced or not, the police had nothing more to tie James to the crime, aside from emotional passion. And apparently that passion was only just surfacing with the news that he had been betrayed by Eleanor. So, what other leads did police have? One, that singular witness. Her name was Jane Gibson. And unfortunately for her, she would soon become nationally known as the Pig Woman. Jane did indeed live on a hog farm with her son, right off to Rusie Lane. When initial investigator and would-be prosecutor Joseph E. Stricker was brought on board, she became his central focus. Please, Mrs. Miss is fine. Miss Gibson. Coming forward like this was the right thing to do. Well, I would certainly hope so. What kind of neighbor would I be if I didn't? Would you kindly describe to me the events that you witnessed on the night of September 14th? It was around 9 p.m., I do believe. I heard my dog yapping outside. I told him to shush, but he wouldn't let up, so I, I decided to investigate. Shh, shh, Jake, shh, shh. I hoofed it down to my fence line and peered across my field. From there, I could see right onto Derussi, that darn crabapple tree. Standing in that field, I saw a man. And something just didn't feel right about that, no sir. 
So I hitched up Jenny, my mule, and we took ourselves closer in. Under that tree, I now saw four people. Four? You're sure? Well, yeah, sure about that. Four shadows standing tall. That is, until I heard the gunshots. How many shots were fired? Uh, now, that I can't recall. But I'd say at least a couple of them. And a woman cried out. No, don't, don't, don't! You're sure of this? I wouldn't forget that. When those shots rang out, I saw one of those people topple over. And I turned Jenny right around and we fled. As we went, I heard a couple of more shots. I turned back. Another body hits the ground. Then I locked Jenny up and I hid inside, keeping my son quiet and calm till the morning. Why didn't you come forward about this until the 16th? I didn't want to cause no trouble. I figured whatever went down out there would either be found out or it wouldn't. Figured since it was found out, I'd better talk. Please, Miss Gibson, is there anything else? Anything at all? Perhaps about the figures you saw standing in the field? Their features? Hmm, two women. One woman fell. The other was left standing, and she was wearing a gray coat. And there we have it. The first recitation of Gibson's tale. And the first of many to come. Well, her testimony was the heart of all future prosecution. Those scant details she remembered became the backbone of their case. Stricker thought it was enough to extend his last remaining theory, that Frances Stevens and one or more of her family members conspired against Edward and Eleanor. I find this highly offensive, Mr. Stricker. And I'm sorry for that, Mrs. Hall. Widow Stevens will do now. I apologize for your loss. Do you? It seems rather that you suspect me of causing it. All avenues must be explored, ma'am. Including my brother's. Unfortunate circumstances beget more and more. The lesson of homicide. Please, all I need to know is what you did the night of the 14th. Simple enough. Edward left the house around 7 p.m. to check on Eleanor's condition and the status of the medical bills we were paying for her. That's very generous of you. Of course, I did not know what was truly going on over there. I see. I played solitaire until around 9 or 10 p.m. Then I went to bed. Without Edward beside me, I must have been disturbed in the night as I woke up at 2.30. I woke my brother Willie and we went looking for him. At the Mills residence? Yes. The lights were not on there. We also tried St. John's. When he could not be found, Willie and I went home. Two days later, I was informed my husband was taken from me. When Stricker brought Frances in for questioning, he told her to wear the coat she wore on the night of the 14th, when she claimed she and Willie went out looking for Edward. Unbeknownst to Francis, Stricker had Gibson on sight to spot the coat, but it was brown, not gray. Well, this was the investigation's first sign that Gibson's eyewitness account may have had some holes in it. Francis, Willie, and Henry Stevens were all questioned for hours. Of chief concern was the fact that the bullet wounds in Edward and Eleanor's bodies matched a 32 caliber pistol. Willie owned a gun that shot 32 caliber, and Henry, of course, was a well-known marksman. Stricker and the prosecution team put together their proposal and readied it for a presentation in front of a grand jury. Not in the mood. Willie, it's only me. <sighs> Francis, what else can we possibly talk about tonight? Let me read in peace. I'm lonely tonight, Willie. Oh. Come in, sister. You'll have to tolerate the tobacco fumes. That Stricker's case is being shown to the grand jury tomorrow. If they decide against us, We'll all be going to trial. I do not need a lesson on the American judicial system, Francis. 
I know, brother. I know you're no fool. All this attention, this talking, it's cluttering my head. I can barely see the words on a page anymore. Calling you a murderer, it's despicable. Oh, Willie, you're my oldest friend, you know that? You're my only friend now. That isn't true. I'm afraid it is. Brother Henry hates me for dragging him into this mess, and Cousin Henry won't return my messages. Forget them both, then. This will tear us asunder. Asunder is a beautiful word. The grand jury has to see what's in front of them. They must believe me over the word of some hog raiser. I believe there is justice in this world, sister. I do. Whether or not Willie's assumption of justice is true, he was proven right the next day. The grand jury did not believe Stricker's case had enough merit. Francis was also right. The word of some pig farmer meant little stacked against the story of one of New Brunswick's wealthiest women. All three of the Stevens siblings were acquitted. Without the Stevens or James Mills to prosecute, the investigation was dead in the water. Well, the national media attention stopped right before it reached a boil. Soon, the only bubbles left were in New Brunswick. Even those would die down in time. Francis Stevens was sure of it. Four years passed, but this case wasn't over. Not just yet. Mr. Arthur Reel, you're here today to bring an annulment suit against your wife, Mrs. Louise Geist Reel. That is correct. Careful listeners may have picked up something here. The Louise Geist that Arthur Reel divorced in 1926 was none other than the maid Louise, who once worked for Francis Stevens and Edward Hall in New Brunswick. During the course of Reel's suit against Louise, a specific detail arose. A small spark that would reignite the fire of the Hall Mills murders. Mr. Reel, your statement here reads that Mrs. Geist divulged to you, sometime in the last four years, a rather disturbing fact. That she did. A fact that made me question the morality of the woman I married. The statement reads as such. Louise Geist informed her husband, Arthur Reel, that during the 1922 investigation of the murders of Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills in New Brunswick, she played a significant role. In fact, she admitted to being the one who told Mrs. Frances Stevens that her husband, Edward, was planning to elope with Mrs. Eleanor Mills. She then stated that she knew Francis, her brothers, and her cousin, Henry Carpenter, were responsible for the double homicide. She then received $5,000 in cash as compensation for keeping this secret. Mr. Reel, do you stand behind the truth of your statement here today? With God's eyes upon me, yes I do. This? This changed everything? Now, while Joseph Stricker had passed away earlier in the year, Many people in the law enforcement and media world were still tuned into the New Brunswick cold case, hoping to stoke the flames once again. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. The stakes were high for both. The state's Justice Department had a name to redeem, and the newspapers had one hell of a story to break. This is Payne at the Daily Mirror. The governor's going to want to hear this. Patching you through now, Mr. Payne. Philip, how did you get this line? Remember who you're talking to, Governor. A scummy, good-for-nothing yellow journalist? Exactly. And I've got some color for you. You deign to inform me of the goings-on of my own state. 
You will lead us just to skip over the river, think you've got a view of the whole damn world. Tell me I'm wrong. The Hall Mills murders case is just getting started. It's four years dry. What the hell are you talking about? Ah, see? Now you're looking for help from us elitists. Or was it scum? I can't recall. It was both. Now either shut your mouth or own up to this garbage you're spouting. It ain't garbage. Just plain bloody truth. Frances Stevens, you know, that sad old widow? Turns out her old maid ratted to her soon-to-be ex-husband that the Stevens siblings and their Wall Street cousin were all behind the murders. And they paid off the help to get away with it. This is some sick joke. Our investigation was there for weeks. You're telling me some maid managed to keep her cool? Money will do that to you, Governor. You should know. That's not all, either. Remember that fellow Henry Dixon? New Jersey lad, considered himself a hobbyist gumshoe, went missing in 1923? No connection was ever proven. Not proven, no. But me? I never liked proof. I loved hearsay. And I heard some say that Dixon's doing time in some prison up in Pennsylvania, singing songs how he was paid off by the Stevens clan, too. Either shut up or follow those two corpses down DeRussi Lane. Why should I trust some dust that rag of yours swept up? Do or don't, Governor. Makes no difference to me. I'm just trying to get the party started. And believe me, the party's definitely about to start. Get your shoes shined. We're heading back to the dance. Listen up. I want my best team of dirty gossips in my office immediately. We've got a story to spin. To lead this renewed investigation and prosecution, Governor Moore enlisted the hotshot Alexander Simpson. With four years of missing time to make up for, Simpson jumped right back in. Yet, in some ways, this long stretch of time may have been an aid, straining guilty consciences. Mr. James Mills, please assert you are aware that this conversation shall be recorded for presentation before a grand jury. I'm aware, Mr. Simpson. Four years ago, you told former investigator Joseph Stricker that you were unaware of the affair between your wife, Eleanor Mills, and the Reverend Edward Hall. I did. But now you have rediscovered some old memories. Yes. Elaborate, please. I... I always knew Eleanor wasn't faithful. But I loved her. I loved her. I tried so many times to have her see the light the truth of our God and our marriage. We argued about it many times. Including on the last night of her life. <laughs> yes. Including that evening. She told me to follow her if I wanted to know what she was doing. If only I had. Damn it all. If only I had had the guts to do it. Maybe we wouldn't be here right now. Why, Mr. Mills, did you lie during the initial investigation? Why did you hold back the truth about your knowledge of the affair? Embarrassment, perhaps? Shame. I had barely grappled with it privately. I couldn't stand revealing it in public. In front of the town. Our children. What about your relationship with Mrs. Frances Stevens Hall? I will not call it a relationship. Even when she married the Reverend, we rarely saw her with the congregation. She was always above us. Do you believe she had the same knowledge that you did about the affair between Edward and Eleanor? I believe she did. What leads you to that conclusion? 
I don't believe there's any way anyone could not have known what was going on by the end of it. Did you have any contact with Mrs. Stevens after September 14th? Yes, I did. In fact, it was very strange. Please, Mr. Mills, tell me exactly what happened. The day after that horrible night, Frances came by our apartment. She was looking for Edward, who she said had run by our place to help out with Eleanor's recent medical bills. Of course that wasn't true. By the look on her face, she didn't believe it either. I told her that Eleanor was missing as well. Was that odd to you? Eleanor often went away for a day or two overnight, but this time it felt different. It felt final. And when I asked Frances what she thought was going on, she looked me right in the eye and she, and she told me. She said she was sure they had run off together and that they were both dead. She used those exact words? Yes, sir. She did indeed. But it wasn't just James who was remembering long-forgotten details. The prosecution's old friend, Jane Gibson, also had a few new memories about that fateful night. This would be the first time Jane would change a few details of her witness account. For years, investigators, both professional and amateur, would debate whether Jane truly remembered new aspects of her account or if it was merely seen as a chance to get back into the action. After all, life as a hog farmer probably wasn't the most exciting, especially after one gets a taste of the national spotlight. Miss Gibson, you do realize that this is a completely new element in your witness testimony. Mr. Simpson, I am no fool, but four years have passed and I've thought about that night ever since, over and over again. Obsessive. Just ask my son. Hell, ask the hogs. They've heard me blabber my theories day in, day out. One more time for the record, Miss Gibson. Please. Hand to God. That night, when Jenny and I rode out near DeRussi and heard those gunshots, I heard something else. I heard a woman shouting, in much distress, the name Henry over and over again. Henry, oh Henry, as if she was pleading, begging, perhaps warning, I don't know. My only question, Miss Gibson, is why you waited until the state reopened this case. Why did you hold this information back from the local police until this time? Well, as I said years ago, I, I was afraid. Aside from the existential fear, of course, of witnessing such an event, did you have a more concrete source of fear? An investigator, some man who I believe was hired by the Stevens a few years back, stopped by my place, told me to keep my mouth shut. Believe me, he said, people like you, nobodies, your word ain't worth dirt anyway. Might as well keep your life. Thank you, Miss Gibson. Now I have a question for you. Yes, Mr. Simpson? Are you ready to make things right? We would like to use you as our chief witness for the prosecution. We believe we are going to take this to trial this time. Well, I suppose a woman has got to take a stand at some point in her life. I'm, I'm ready, Mr. Simpson. Let's solve this. With Gibson's new admission of hearing the name Henry shouted near DeRussi Lane on the night of September 14th, Alexander Simpson had the entire Stevens clan, Francis, Willie, Henry, and cousin Henry Carpenter, brought up on charges. On well, this time, the grand jury accepted the indictment. Breaking news. In this year of 1926, four years after lust and murder shook New Brunswick, New Jersey, the trial of the century begins. This is the story of the year, folks. One for the record books. 
Court documents show there will be upwards of 150 witnesses called over the course of the next few weeks. Jury selection has been completed, and the trial start date has been set for November 3rd. Folks, set your watches. Let's see how long it takes for justice to be served. Philip Payne and the Daily Mirror had exactly what they wanted. At least two months of free stories that the entire nation would devour like addictive candy. It was a huge sensation from the get-go. Whether it was a good idea or bad, Alexander Simpson opened the prosecution's case with a whammy. You see, a week before the trial began, Jane Gibson came down with a debilitating illness. Whether it was her choice or not, Simpson needed her as the chief witness to offer the biggest piece of testimony they had in their pocket. And after arresting four members of one of the wealthiest families in New Jersey, he needed to prove this second look at the case was not a fluke. So, left with no other options, Jane Gibson was wheeled into the trial on her hospital bed. A sight like that was just what the press needed. Another splash of out-of-this-world sensation. The pig woman had made her grand entrance, and it was just as kooky as everyone secretly hoped it would be. Order! Order! Prosecution calls our chief witness, Jane Gibson, to the stand. You must mean the prosecution wheels her to the stand. No one enjoyed this more than Willie Stevens, a man completely fascinated by the madhouse developing around his life. Although Alexander may have worried about this spectacle damaging his witness's credibility, what he should have been worrying about was betting the audience a little better. Liar. Jane Gibson is a good-for-nothing liar. Order! Damn it all! Please, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, forgive our witness. She was so ill, yet her heart could not stand to let this murder continue to go unpunished. That woman is a liar. Don't believe a word that comes from her mouth. Who is that damn heckler? It's Miss Gibson's mother, Mr. Simpson. We couldn't keep her out. I raised that girl, and she's never met a story she can't make up. That's right. Even Gibson's mother emerged from the woodwork to cash in on her rural daughter's newfound fame. Her accusations did Jane few favors. Over the course of her testimony, Jane's story wavered back and forth, mixing and matching both versions of her two testimonies delivered over the years so far. And creating a third, even more muddled, witness testimony. Aside from Jane's own confusion, the sideshow story crafted around her with the media calling her out as a country lunatic and a freak overshadowed anything she said. At least in the public's judgment. The defense, led by former New Jersey Attorney General Robert H. McCarter, exploited this perceived weakness in Jane's character. Whose word are we supposed to believe? The word of Francis Stevens, an upstanding and well-respected member of the New Brunswick community, not to mention the bereaved in this case, or this incoherent farmer. The defense's strategy was simple. Place as much blame as possible on James Mills, the typical suspect for a case like this, while prepping their best bet as a chief witness. None other than Willie Stevens himself. This made everyone on the defense very nervous, especially Francis Stevens. But with both Henry's alibis tied up, both having claimed to be out of town on the night of the 14th, Willie was Francis's last chance. In all of those years of living together, Francis never could have expected that her black sheep brother's word would be the only defense for her own. Sensing this strategy, Alexander Simpson deployed his counterattack. He would prove to the world at large that Willie lived up to his reputation. As a jobless, unstable anomaly in the otherwise classy society of New Brunswick. 
Simpson was going to take on the Stevens family name by attacking its weakest member. Remember, there were rumors that Willie didn't have the same father as the other siblings. It was a low blow, but it was Simpson's best chance at proving his prosecution's theory. Tomorrow is the day. The crazy brother takes the stand, Mr. Simpson. I'm salivating. I'm going to tie that Willie Stevens into knots. So up to the witness stand came Dr. Lawrence Runyon, the Stevens family doctor. Dr. Runyon, you have served the Stevens family for many years. This is true. Is it also true that William, or Willie Stevens, has always stood out from his siblings and family members? Mm, Certainly. Is it true that, as a child, Willie sometimes set fires in the family backyard? Objection! Overruled. Please answer the question, Dr. Runyon. I do recall such events occurring, though far be it for me to say what they represented Willie's mental state. What would you say about Willie's mental state? This was Alexander Simpson's chance to make his first advance against the defense's case. It all depended on Runyon's careful choice of words. He may not be absolutely normal mentally, but he is able to take care of himself perfectly well. He's brighter than the average person, although he's never advanced as far in school learning as some others. He reads books that are above the average and makes a good many people look like fools. Uh, Really? Makes others look like fools? A man who cannot even hold a job? Occupations are not always the mark of the man, Mr. Simpson. You make it seem, though, as if Willie Stevens is some sort of genius. Well, yes, a sort of genius. That is exactly what I mean. Swing and a miss for Simpson. By coming on so strongly against Willie, Simpson inadvertently built up goodwill for the man in the jury's eyes. After weeks of lead-up, it became clear that Willie Stevens' cross-examination would be the central focus and defining feature of the trial. Francis had made sure that Willie would have a talented and empathetic lawyer in his corner for the questioning. His name was Charles Case. Good evening, Mr. Case. Good evening, Francis. I assume you are here to speak about Willie's time on the stand tomorrow? Indeed. Have we not sufficiently prepared for this moment? I do believe Robert and our team have led quite the able defense, but Simpson is very aware of how vulnerable Willie is. You heard it yourself from Runyon. He's not a child. Of course not, but Francis, it is true that Willie has always been regarded as essential to you, to be taken care of during his life. I'm his sister. He's my brother. We look out for one another. In certain aspects, yes, he must be taken care of. Though I believe that's why we hired you, is it not? To take care of Willie tomorrow? To guide him to the other side? There's only so much we can do. I agree, Mr. Case. But my brother and I have been living through this hell for four years now. There's nothing to be done tonight. The time has run up. Willie speaks for us tomorrow. God bless him. Godspeed to him. Mr. Stevens. Mr. Carpenter. Where's Robert? I'll be making the rounds tonight, Mr. Stevens. I wanted to make sure the two Henrys had told me everything they needed to about Willie Stevens. Hell, Francis hired you for a reason, right? What are we supposed to tell you? You know Willie better than most. And those most have an unfavorable opinion of the man. He spent his life hiding away in books. Nobody trusts someone like that. Come on now, who are we to speak? Look at us. Locked up like common criminals. I, for one, No, I'm not party to these despicable crimes. Oh, and I was? (laughs) It's what the pig woman says, isn't it? Now, now, lads, this is what I'm trying to figure out. Does Willie have a temper I will be in risk of upsetting? 
We walk a fine line here. If the man takes even one step out of normality, all your lives could be at risk. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Case. If Willie's normality is the foundation upon which our justice lies, we're on shaky ground indeed. Ignore him, Mr. Case. It's the last thing you need to hear on the night before your big day. Your opinion on William's temperament differs, Mr. Carpenter? I think Willie's a man just like the rest of us. Treat him as such. Show the jury that truth and all other truth will follow. I only worry you've forgotten what it's like in here, cousin. This isn't the city. The laws of nature are different out here. Do not get too dramatic, Mr. Stevens. We are, after all, just in New Jersey. Exactly, Mr. Case. My point exactly. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now, our story continues. The day was November 23rd. Willie Stevens was brought to the witness stand to plead his case. Good morning, Mr. Stevens. Morning, Mr. Case. Let us disperse with the necessary, shall we? You are William Stevens, brother of Francis Stevens. Yes, sir. Your age? 44, sir. Uh, don't you mean... 54. <laughs> Oops. Yes, I do. It was a rocky start, but Willie held his ground. The prosecution has called against you the charge of using your personal weapon in this murder. Do you own a 32 caliber gun? I do. Why, Mr. Stevens? Well, uh, my brother is a champion shooter. Suppose I just grew a little jealous. And I liked shooting it off on the 4th of July. Order! Either way, the firing pin has been filed down so I can't hurt myself or others. Overall, Charles Case did an excellent job of painting a positive portrait of Willie. On the night of September 14th, you have said you spent the night in your room after Reverend Hall left the premises. Reading, I believe? Oh, I read a lot. How much would you say? Five books a week? Oh, such a number is just the bread and butter of my literary repast. I seek to expand my mind in all directions. I'm not lazy in that regard. What do you think I've been doing holed up in that cage these last hundred days? I hope to be a master of metallurgy. And the door to your room was closed. Because of what reason? I must keep the door closed. Certain parties object to my smoking of tobacco. What parties? Well, just about anybody in the house. Case next took Willie through his testimony of what happened after Francis woke him on the night of the 14th. His story matched Francis's perfectly. They went to look for Edward at the mills and at the church, and then they came home, where his door was promptly shut once again. By the time Simpson approached the witness stand, the crowd was already on Willie's side. When Simpson mispronounced the name of the local boarding house, Willie corrected him to the delight of everyone in the courthouse. Well, this only made Simpson attack with more insistence. He was rough and extensive, taking his time, trying to get a rise out of Willie. He went over the details of Jane's testimony again and again, trying to connect it to Willie in any way possible. Do you recall being at the scene of the crime, Darussi Lane, and seeing a woman go by on her mule? I, I never remember that occurrence. You would remember it if it occurred, wouldn't you? Do you say you were not there, or that you simply do not remember? I say positively that I was not there. Why did you say you do not remember? Well, I withdraw that, if I may. And I say I was not there positively. While Simpson almost caught him in a quagmire, Willie impressed everyone with his professional and judicial behavior. 
Overall, he treated Simpson with much more respect than Simpson gave to him. Things came to a head when Simpson asked Willie to once again go over the details of September 14th. And when Willie did so, speaking clearly and without missing a beat... May I ask you to again go over the details of that night? Objection, this is ridiculous. Overruled, Mr. McCarter. Mr. Simpson's question is a legitimate one. Clearly, Simpson was trying to prove that Case and the defense had coached Willie, pounding in the details of the night, giving him lines to spout. So Willie repeated the story, again. It was the same details, but he made sure to tell them in a different way, proving that if he had indeed memorized the story before this day in court, he was some kind of genius by memorizing many different configurations. Mr. Stevens, may I ask you to repeat this story once more? No more of this. Please, uh, if I may say a word? Please do, Mr. Stevens. Go right ahead. All I have to say is I was never taught, as you insinuate, by any person at all, how to tell my story. What I have told you twice now is the best recollection I have of the time I started out on the search with my sister until this very present minute. Willie Stevens left the witness stand with a big smile on his face and a courthouse full of new fans. Simpson, on the other hand, was quite grim. Newspapers across the country complimented Willie's composure, almost taking a certain pride in it. Willie Stevens stands up like steel to the fire of Simpson's accusations. After hours on the stand, the black sheep brother proves that Stevens' blood does run through his veins. Ten days later, on December 3rd, the jury broke. It took only four hours. When they returned to the courtroom, they announced that they believed the accused parties to be... Not guilty, Your Honor. Oh, Willie, Henry, thank goodness. We did it, sister, we did it. For the Stevens family, the fight was finally over. Well, sort of. Francis, what are you still doing in the office? You're free now. Go back to New Brunswick. I wanted to talk about our next case. Hopefully you can find me someone suitable to carry it out. What other case are you talking of? One of my own, against those vile papers. The Daily Mirror, in particular. Do you know it? <laughs> do I know a Philip Payne? <laughs> I do. I do. And believe me, it would be my pleasure. Faster driver! Haven't you heard? I'm a free man. The sensation of the Hall Mills murders died down across America when it became clear that the mystery would never truly be solved. But for New Brunswick itself, and the Stevens in particular, the scars were permanent. So what of that mysterious night of September 14th? In the wake of the trial, many tried to sort out the real truth. There was speculation that the Ku Klux Klan, newly active in New Jersey, could have had something against this reverend running around with one of his congregants. But there's slim evidence to support this. Not to mention, the KKK usually likes to leave sigils behind, marking their dark deeds. The most obvious suspects remain those closest to Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills. While the many fingerprints on Hall's business card and the common 32 caliber of the bullet holes obscured those clues... The torn-up love letters seem to remain the smoking gun. There's also the discrepancy in violence to consider. While Edward was merely shot, Eleanor had her throat cut after her death and her larynx ripped out from her body. A disturbing but interesting wound for a choir singer to receive, and one that points to someone having a very personal problem with dear Eleanor. In the humble opinion of your hosts, Jane Gibson's testimony cannot be completely excised either. While her story changed many times, it's too specific for there not to be a few kernels of truth contained within. So who was it? 
Who killed these two? Who orchestrated it? Who could have even conceived of it? Let's return to DeRussy Lane, September 14th. Are you sure no one has followed us, Edward? Please, Ellie, let's not ruin our night together. See, look what I've brought. Our letters? Are you crazy? I told you to lock those away. Just for tonight. I wanted to hear you read your words out loud to me. I want the Sermon of Eleanor. <laughs> You're so dramatic. I can't help it around you. Ah, uh, Edward, someone's watching us. Whoa, hey now, back up. Little Ellie, always running around and breaking hearts. Ralph? Is that you? Ah, Ralph Gorsline, town philanderer and scoundrel. Despite interviews placing Ralph and his mysterious companion from the choir near Derussi that night, there was little follow-through into investigating him. Perhaps the drama of the scorned spouses and mentally ill brother was too much, their link to Jane's witness account too perfect. While the newspapers chased the heart-pounding narrative, the reality was much more banal. Eleanor's past caught up to her. And Edward's holier-than-thou attitude pushed the wrong people's buttons. <laughs> Look at these two quivering. Are these love letters? Disgusting. You know, she wrote me some of those too, Eddie. You're not that special. Please, Heavenly Father, pray for us sinners. Edward, stop it. You're scaring me. You're making it worse. Ralph, put that gun down. Oh, shut your mouth, whore. I loved you, Ellie. Please. No! Edward and Eleanor thought that if everyone already knew the basic truth, they'd be safe in their transparency. Their love could be their own private details. They didn't count on a persistent stalker, made enraged by his own secret love lost. While the story of the murders was indeed a narrative that engulfed the town, from its richest citizens to its most pious members in the pews, the murders themselves were much simpler. The town of New Brunswick, around the turn of what would become known as the American Century, held many secrets. Yet it was the secrets Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills didn't bother to keep that led to their sad, all-too-human ends. Again, our theory comes with the disclaimer that the truth of this case remains a mystery. And due to the amount of time that's passed and the lack of lasting evidence, it most likely will be unsolved forever. But who do you think did it? Weigh in on ParCast's Twitter and Facebook pages to kickstart your modern investigation. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, ParCast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our ParCast Facebook page. You can tweet us at ParCast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening. And hope you'll join us next Tuesday when we dive into the Grimes Sisters murders. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If, and that's a big if, we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein, and written by Jack Bentel. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, 
Matt Cannon, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Mick Lambeth, Janice Liebhart, Michael Malconian, Manuna Ryan, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Paulson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>